And he says to me, so tell me, you know, Frankel, would, would you do this? Would you be willing to, um, you know, sleep under your desk the majority of nights to work three jobs for, uh, for really terrible pay of only one job? Uh, would you sacrifice your friendships and relationships all in hopes of eventually getting in development? And I said, of course I would. He said, good, then get the fuck out of my office and we'll talk in a year. And that was my first experience <laughs> in the workforce. <laughs> you, know, like. you are listening to Louder Than Words, the podcast inspiring creatives of all types by giving you a glimpse into the lives and creative process of the most remarkable people you know. I'm John Benini, and I'm your host. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Louder Than Words, where I have the, the really good fortune to be able to hang out with some of the most brilliant creators, um, you know, at least the ones that I have access to. How about that? So, um, and, and today is going to be a lot of fun. My name is John Benini, as you know, uh, but today, more importantly, I am joined by, finally, uh, Keith, <laughs> Keith Frankel, who, um, who sort of, uh, he's... He's done a lot of things, and I'm sure you've probably seen his work uh, probably in a multitude of places. So kind of cut his teeth in production um, at a, a little place called MTV that you may have heard of. Then kind of made a jump into the tech world uh, at HubSpot, where he he uh, kind of still is, not at HubSpot, but uh, in the tech world uh, at a place called Firecracker. Did I, get right, uh, did I get that right, Keith? You got that right, dead on. And uh, he's also sort of, uh, he's known for the past few months as starting this project called Adventures in Honesty, which sort of follows his personal experience to live a life without lying, like like ever, uh, even like little white lies, um, the things we say to people to be polite, uh, which is super interesting. It's a blog. You should definitely check it out, adventuresinhonesty.com. Um, and that's gotten him some interesting press too, which is, which is really cool. Um, and so his backstory on that is really cool too as well. So finally excited to have Keith here. Uh, Keith, welcome to Louder Than Words, man. Thanks for coming on. John, thanks so much for having me. I'm sorry I'm so difficult to track down, <laughs> but I'm really, really glad to be here. Uh, for, so obviously, uh, unless you're you're obviously really close with Keith, you wouldn't know. But if you call his cell phone, like he has a voicemail, and he very uh, candidly tells you, "Don't bother leaving a voicemail because I don't check these things." So you really got to catch him, like when, when he picks up the phone. So wasn't wasn't <coughs> difficult to track you down, but uh, you know the <clears throat> the level of candor, even on your voicemail, uh, says a lot. So that <laughs> yeah, it, it's funny. Even when you suck at uh, correspondence <laughs> or being in touch with people, as soon as you admit that you suck. People are usually okay with it. Exactly. Yeah, they let, they kind of let you off the hook with it. Um, so yeah. So uh, so where do we start, right? So so first of all, like we kind of like went through you know the the thirty thousand foot view of like the things that you've accomplished in in your young career, but um, you know something people probably wouldn't know uh, unless they were really close with you was that you were actually a philosophy. You have a philosophy background, right? In in <laughs> school. So tell us about like tell us about that and like what where where that sort of, um, you know, passion came from. Yeah, I think, uh, it's, it's actually to, to kind of tell that story, you almost have to go a little bit further back. Um, so a bit of background, I was, uh, raised in a small town in Alabama, uh, called Athens, Alabama, you know, two main roads, a few street lights, uh, one school, that kind of, you know, small town living. Um, but I was actually first generation Southern. So my dad was from the Bronx in New York um, moved to the South because he's a surgeon and he was offered a, a position at a private practice in the South. And my mom was a, a school teacher, but originally from New Mexico. Um, all that really means is that the environment in which I was socialized, my home, uh, was very different than the environment right outside my door. I was first generation Southern. And so uh, I never felt like I was at home in the South. And as soon as I could leave, I did. So as soon as I graduated high school, I was out of here and moved to the Northeast. Um, went to uh, Yale, did a semester of courses and really did not like New Haven, was looking for something else to do. And I ended up at Tufts in uh, Boston. And that's, that's where I ended up staying and finishing my undergrad. Um, but when I actually got to Tufts, I was pre-med. Um, we all know you know, a certain number of jobs growing up. We know doctor, we know lawyer, police officer, fireman, astronaut, and cowboy. <laughs> and so when uh, when I was growing up, 
uh, I figured I would be one of those and it was a doctor. But we also all know the family business and my family's business was surgery. So, you know, no surprise that I went to college thinking I was going to be a pre-med student, a doctor. And so it was the first semester. Um, I had to uh, schedule courses and I decided I did not want Friday classes because what 19-year-olds away from home for the first time wants to uh, wake up early on a Friday and miss those uh, Thursday booze nights. <laughs> so I decided I would try and find any class I could to avoid Friday, Friday morning um, classes and the only one was philosophy. And so I signed up for philosophy and I was also taking, I think, bio and maybe chemistry as well. And the first semester kicks off and I'm in philosophy and loving life, man, like really enjoying the work. And at the same time, I'm in bio 13. And I remember one night I was sitting there and I was prepping for the first midterm and I flipped the page and I was falling asleep. And I remembered thinking, what the fuck am I doing this? This sucks, right? Like it was just the worst experience ever. And all of a sudden, and I had this kind of you know, lucid moment of clarity where I decided I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to commit my life to this. If I cannot flip, you know, one page of this bio textbook easily, then to do a whole career out of this is probably the wrong move. So I actually made the emotional phone call to my, my pops that night and told him I was leaving medicine to pursue philosophy. And he um, told me, enjoy lifelong unemployment. And that's kind of how I made the shift to philosophy. And I spent the next several years thinking I was going to become a professional philosopher, which if anyone knows, essentially means uh, you're a professor and you write a few articles a year and a book that nobody reads every few years. And that's what I thought I was going to be. And kind of through a crazy series of events that ended up not happening. I ended up leaving academia and, and made the transition to New York to produce reality TV shows at MTV. Uh, but still to this day, philosophy, I think, is one of the biggest, you know, my my background in philosophy is one of the biggest differentiators. I believe it's one of the main components that it's allowed me, that has allowed me to be successful uh, in my career so far. Yeah, and you made this transition to, yeah, to to this world, you know, New York City, MTV, reality television, kind of went in the opposite direction. Uh, what uh, What got you, what got you, like, what brought you to MTV? Um, the, the way I was contacted is kind of a long story. You know, the, I, I think that's a, I'm happy to tell that story. I think the reason I was so excited to take the MTV offer I received was because, you know, I grew up in this small town and there's just not much to do in the South. And so growing up, we would sit around and watch reality television shows on MTV. I remember growing up really wanting to be on the real world or to do road rules, you know, when they still had that or the real world road rules challenge, you know? Yeah, and sure. so, you know, there's nothing to do in the South. So we would watch MTV a lot. And so when a job offer to work at MTV came around, it was, you know, I had this kind of flashback to my Southern lizard brain and it said, holy cow, how do you give this up? You can't possibly not take this job. And so I was crazy and I took the job. Um, you know, how I got, how I was offered the job, I was actually um, asked to be uh, on an episode of this show made. Um, John, are you familiar with the show? Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so you remember it's kind of like the down and out high school kid who feels like if they could just achieve something, like make the basketball team or become homecoming or prom queen, that, um, that, that, that would really make their high school career happen. And so we would, um, you know, they would, the show is basically about bringing in a professional who does what these kids want to learn to do. So if a kid wanted to play basketball, for example, we'd bring in Michael Jordan to teach the kid to play basketball for a month. Um, so I was actually asked to be a coach on an episode of this show and you hang out in the middle of nowhere, you know, filming in these small towns for four to six weeks and everybody who works at MTV is young. And so by the end of it, I was really close with the production crew and started saying to them, hey, you know, like this thing's about to wrap up. You should totally let give me a job. And they kind of like brushed me off for a long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. And eventually I convinced them to to set me up with an interview with a supervising producer. And I came, I got a call and I um, left Boston and went to New York, I think on a Wednesday or Thursday. I had the interview on Friday and I started on Monday. And that's kind of how it, just a crazy whirlwind got me into MTV. Wow, wow. And talk about, 
talk about the experience uh, culturally working in a place like MTV. And I think this is important because as we'll get into later, the contrast that you saw between, you know, a, a place like MTV and, you know, the tech world um, kind of, you know, led you to what you're doing right now. So, um, yeah, if you could talk about that experience, particularly that one instance where um, you had a supervisor tell you to, to, to get the fuck out of his office. Yeah. So um, let's lead with that story. And then I, I think that's a great place to start. When I, you know, I left, well, let me, you know, let's talk about who I was at the time as a person. I was um, young, highly motivated, career driven, type A personality, slightly neurotic, totally egomaniacal, full of pride, uh, and certainly entitled to the degree that I believe many millennials are entitled, right? Um, and so when I, you know, I graduated from a top university, I'd kind of always been top of my class in middle school, high school, college. And so when I made the transition to MTV, believe it or not, I came in and within the first two weeks, I thought I was too smart to be doing the job I was doing. But I had no video production experience. I had no video editing experience. I had no experience whatsoever. Basically, I had done nothing to earn this feeling of, you know, entitlement I had. It was completely ridiculous. But, you know, I think about two weeks in, um, I think like, oh, I, I want to move up. I want to be where the big dogs are. I really, I really want to be running this thing. And so I scheduled a coffee meeting with the executive producer of this show, of um, the show Made. He was actually the executive producer of many different series. Uh, and believe it or not, he actually accepted it, right? I was a nobody. I was bottom of the totem pole. I was a production assistant, um, you know, doing casting for the show Made. And, and some other side projects. And I decided I deserve to talk to this guy. And, you know, amazingly enough, he accepted it. And so we get in a room together and I say, is, uh, um, Lyons is his last name. And I said, you know, Mr. Lyons, it's so great to, to meet you. I really just want to introduce myself and blah, 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 blah. And he says, how's it going, Frankel? What do you need? I was like, oh, no, no, I don't I don't need anything. Like, I just wanted you to see my face and get to know each other and just introduce myself and tell you how great it is to be here. He goes, listen, man, um, I know you came here with an agenda. Uh, it's it's OK. Let's save us both some time. I have a lot to do. I'm sure you have a lot to do. Just tell me what you want and let's get down to it. And so I just said, listen, I think I'm too smart to be doing the job I'm doing. And he goes, OK. And he goes, what do you think you should be doing? I said, I think I should be doing development. Now, for anyone who doesn't know what that is, development is one of the hardest jobs to get in production. Essentially, you're put on this really small team of two to three to four people. At least that's what it was like um, where I worked. And your job is to come up with a new show concept, to cast it, to produce it, to edit it, and basically put a, a proof of concept in front of these executive producers to bite on and maybe whip up a new series. It's the hardest job to get. And... I don't even think I really knew what it was when I walked in there. Remember, this is two weeks in. I have no background. I think I just heard people chatting about it around the office. And so I tell this guy, um, Lyons, that, you know, I want to do this thing. And he, to, to give people perspective, this is, if, if anyone recalls that um, event uh, several years ago at the award show when uh, Taylor Swift is accepting her award and Kanye West interrupts her and he says, you know, hey, Taylor Swift, I'm going to let you finish, but Beyonce had the best album of the year. And then later, fast forward to later that night, Beyonce wins an award and invites Taylor Swift up to really get her moment. That was not Beyonce's idea. That apparently, this is what I heard around the office, was this guy Lyons' idea. And so... Uh, if that's true, you can tell this is a powerful guy. Even if that is not true, he's a very powerful dude. Um, so anyways, I tell this guy within two weeks, I, I, want, I think I need to be doing development. And he says to me, okay, let me tell you a little story about how I got started. And you know, to summarize this quickly, he essentially tells me that he had a girlfriend. Uh, or at, when he first started, he was you know, working, I believe, at you know, uh, re not even retail, I think the food service industry. Um, maybe he was doing some bartending, but he loved television and really wanted to be in television. And so he begged his girlfriend who actually had some connections to get him a television job. And she was able to, but he started at the very bottom rung production assistant, just like me. Uh, and he started with a bunch of people around the same time and he just loved it. And in his first year, 
he not only did his own job, which uh, for anyone who is unfamiliar is like a 14-hour-a-day job, if not more. Um, he would do his production assistant job Monday through Friday. And then after his, his day was over, around 8.30 at night, he'd head over to the edit bay, which is where they actually edit the, the uh, episodes. Um, at night, they bring in the junior editors, the assistant editors, and they will edit and blur and do the basic stuff all through the night. They basically work the graveyard shift. And so he would go and he would sleep in the edit bay and learn from these editors uh, for free. You know, he just wanted to go and see what they did and learn as much as he could. And then he'd do that Monday through Friday. He would work at uh, his main job. He would sleep in the edit bay at night and learn the second job. And then on the weekends, he would volunteer to go be a, an, an extra hand on the shoots, actually on location in the field. And he would get paid for neither of these latter two jobs. He would only get paid his honestly really shitty wage for the first job. And he told me in his first year he did this and basically had no friends, no girlfriend, none of these things. And he only slept in his apartment a month out of that first year. But at the end of that first year, he was three years ahead of all of his peers who had started when he did. And they made him a full producer, which is like a three-year track for most people, if not longer. And within a year, he was able to do it. And so he looked at me after telling me this story and he's, and I'm, you know, internally like, holy cow, this dude is amazing. And he says to me, so tell me, you know, Frankel, would, would you do this? Would you be willing to, um, you know, sleep under your desk the majority of nights to work three jobs for, uh, for really terrible pay of only one job? Uh, would you sacrifice your friendships and relationships all in hopes of eventually getting in development? And I said, of course I would. He said, good, then get the fuck out of my office and we'll talk in a year. And that was my first experience in the workforce. <laughs> you know, like, but to this day, it is, it is the ultimate formative experience for me. It has basically set how I view what I need to do each day in order to get ahead, in order to get, you know, to earn what I, what I want, to reach the goals I have for myself. And that is kind of how the, the culture at MTV just was. There was none of this beating around the bush. If you had a bad idea, people didn't pat you on the back and say, boy, nice try. We would, you know, we would present our work in a boardroom in front of you know, 30 people and the supervising producers, the series producers, the executive producer, they would just pause it in front of everybody and say, what the fuck were you thinking? This is terrible. <laughs> We cannot show this to people. No, no, seriously, what were you thinking? And did so, you, did you have this done to you? I never had it done to me, but I had it done in front of me many times, right? Many times. After the first, you know, I was, I think I was fortunate that two weeks in, I had this guy tell me this directly in his personal office. And so from then on out, I was on my game, right? <laughs> I made sure to come correct to every one of these meetings. Um, but that's a great thing. I always brought my best work. I never brought subpar work. I never just tried to check the boxes and, and move on. I was always coming with the absolute best thing I could produce in the time allotted. And there was no complaining about how much time was available. You just had to do it or you were going to get just roasted in front of a room of 30 of your peers, all of whom you respect and honestly are just competing with because entertainment's highly competitive, right? It's, it's a, an industry that's run on nepotism. And, you know, if only one person is going to get the next episode, you want to be that one person. And so anyway, uh, it was a really interesting experience as a first job because uh, just being there was not enough to get compliments or to get a pat on the back. In fact, doing good work wasn't enough. It was this kind of like, oh, wait, you want me to say good job for doing what I pay you to do? Why? I'm sorry. Why would I compliment you for that? I pay you for that. And so... You know, it was this constant pushing yourself to do every deliverable as good as or better than the, the deliverable before it, always trying to avoid being blasted in front of a group of people, but getting to the point where you, you actually really appreciated the candor. Like you always knew where you stood. You always knew how good your work was. You knew why your ideas weren't used and you knew how to improve them in the future in order to make sure that they were used. Um, and when you actually compare it, it's, it's very similar to philosophy. Right. They the first day in any philosophy class, at least any good one, they tell you that the basic unit of philosophy is argument. Most of us in our normal lives, when we talk about arguments or argumentation, we view that as kind of like a scary thing, a negative thing. I don't want to argue with you. But in reality, in philosophy, at least, that is the ultimate thing. You cannot get closer to the truth about reality, about, you know, our position in it without arguing with each other to try and get, you know, 
some idea of who's right, who's wrong. And it's not about, you know, proving someone's right and someone's wrong. It's proving what the right thing is and what the wrong thing is. And so MTV was almost the logical next step for me from philosophy, going into a room every single day in a philosophy class and having to justify and defend your opinions. And it's the, the responsibility of your peers to punch holes in it, to tear at the seams, to show you how, you know, what you hold to be true or, you know, this idea you have is actually false. And so uh, having to defend that every single day and if you can't, having to go back to the drawing board and improve your idea or improve your opinion is exactly what MTV was like. And so, it, you know, in hindsight, it was actually a really logical next step, MTV following philosophy. But at the, at the time and when I tell people still today, they're like, whoa, how did that happen? I'm actually really thrilled it happened in that way. And so why did you leave? I mean, it sounded like it was, even though the the environment was a little like, you know, hardened, you know, uh, you enjoyed it, you know? So what what eventually led to you departing not only MTV, but but sort of the production aspect of, of, of entertainment and, and heading to the tech world? Um, I think it's one of those things where an aggregate of all your concerns is what really, you know, there's no one thing that's the nail in the coffin, but you know, I, I think in general, um, it is a an environment that thrives off of a certain degree of fear mongering. Um, they know they meaning like, you know, MTV production management uh, for each episode. They know that there is a stack of resumes for hopeful MTV employees and they can hold that over your head. And they do. Um, so there's the kind of constant like, oh, you're not going to work 14 hours today. Huh. Okay. And that always exists. And that's really frustrating. Um, the other thing is that, listen, entertainment can be a grimy business. And I was still a philosophy student at heart. And so after, you know, spending two, two and a half years feeling in, you know, completely morally bankrupt, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm over this. I'm ready to move on and do something else. Um, and so that's, you know, I came to the, I worked on three Emmy award-winning seasons of this show made. And at the end of my last episode on the third season, I believe it was like season 12 or 13, I decided I'm, I'm done here. I, I don't want to come back for this. And there was actually a really interesting, it's not actually interesting. It's, it's actually horrible to tell. Uh, but one of the, I'll tell it quickly, one of the last, um, before we we decide to do certain episodes with kids, they go through a pretty rigorous casting process. And one of those, uh, one one of the last steps of that process is to actually send a film crew out to a prospective talent, a prospective kid's home, and film with them for three to four days. And then all of that footage from four days of filming with them comes back to the office. It gets edited in 48 hours down to a three or four minute package. That's called a green light. And then that gets shown to this boardroom of 30 people. And so uh, as a producer or as a casting producer, you get hooked to some of these kids because you talk to them for weeks, sometimes months. And then finally they get they get cleared to go to the green light phase. And then once you shoot the green light, it's your job to present them to the supervising producers, the executive producer and try and sell them as an episode. And so you become emotionally attached to these kids, at least on the show made. And so uh this last girl I had, um, she was just great. And one of the saddest cases we had, I, I, unfortunately I don't remember her name and that makes me feel really bad, but essentially this girl, um, had been born with, um, uh, some health issues in her legs, her bones had not developed correctly. And so, um, despite the fact of having many surgeries and then being corrected over time, they still could not handle like explosive movements or anything. So it was really hard for her to work out. And because of that, over time, she had obviously gained a considerable amount of weight. Um, and at the same time, her mom had been diagnosed with leukemia and her dad was out of work with a back injury, but none of her friends or classmates knew any of this. Because at work, she was at work, I'm sorry, at school, she was so jovial and lighthearted and fun loving. But then she would come home from, from school and just be really sad and depressed in this home life. And, you know, for these kids, kids like this, MTV with all its resources can really, I mean, it, we had the, you know, potential not only to change her life by helping her lose weight, which is what she wanted to do, but we could have been her kind of crowning moment in her life up to that point. Like she was on an MTV episode. 
So anyway, I become attached to this girl and I end up uh, doing a green light with her and I go and I show this to the uh, producers. It gets edited down to this, you know, four days of footage and 48 hours gets edited down to uh, four minutes and I present it and I'm all excited and about a minute into the video or so, it might have even been less, the executive producer says, next. I'm like, what? Why? He's like, ah, she's, it's a little too sad. She's a little too overweight. The next girl that was what we did that was shown on the screen was like a five foot nine, really attractive young blonde girl who lived in California. Both of her parents were surgeons. She lived in a three story house and she wanted to be a surfer because people would take her seriously. And we watched the entire four minutes of her green light. And then uh, the executive producer says, you know, really, you know, young, attractive. She'll be in a bathing suit on the beach. Yeah, let's do her. And I, that was just kind of the final straw for me. And I think my, the episode I was actually working on ended shortly after, and I was done after that. I, I just, I couldn't stomach that kind of environment. And so that's, that's ultimately why I left, why I left entertainment. Ugh, man. Uh, I mean, who could blame you? Um, and talk about um, how you wound up, uh, you know, you know, you talked about this, you know, leaving MTV, but this transition to the tech world and most notably HubSpot, obviously, where you, you know, eventually uh, became a creative director. Um, and, uh, you know, HubSpot is a company that that definitely prides itself on on culture and um, kind of like, I guess, in some ways sort of the exact opposite of that boardroom mentality at MTV, right? That, you know, what the fuck were you thinking type of thing, um, you know, which some people uh, obviously find constructive. But then you found yourself in, in the tech world and at a place like HubSpot who values, you know, culture much differently. Um, talk about that transition. Yeah, so um, I think the the less interesting story is how I was able to transition from entertainment to uh, tech and, and we're happy to dive into that. But I think the culture shock once I made it to tech was really, I, I think is, is, you know, valuable to discuss. Um, I, after I left entertainment, um, did a lot of work, was able to finally make the transition to tech and I landed in a, uh, a language learning software company in the middle of New Hampshire Um Rosetta Stone's biggest competitor, but not in the consumer space. We really did, uh, you know, institutional sales directly to big government agencies. So um, I led the product design team that made this language learning software for U.S. Department of Defense and the CIA, Special Operations Command, the Army, the Navy, kind of these big barrel chested military defense guys. And that was great because I, I got to learn all the skills and build up a portfolio of work that was required to eventually get poached by HubSpot to come be their creative director. And when they hired me at HubSpot, um, you know, they, they kind of told me early on, you've, you've got about two years to prep this thing for an IPO. Um, that's, that's where we're going. And so that's how I started at, uh, at HubSpot and immediately was this, this unbelievable culture shock. Um, first, you know, and kind of just as an aside, folks in tech think they work long hours and they, you know, we talk a lot about work life balance and all of these things. And, um, the truth is people in tech don't work anywhere near the kind of hours that people in entertainment did. And I think that's one reason I've been able to be more successful quickly, uh, in my tech career, because I'm just used to a threshold of work. That is unlike, you know, what most people are willing to commit just simply because they're not used to having to commit more. Um, but the thing that was really shocking to me once I made the transition to tech, uh, especially these startups, is this idea that everybody has a seat at the table. Um, and I, when I say that, like people seem to think that I'm implying that not everyone should have a seat at the table. And they're like, but, but everybody's opinions matter. And the truth is they don't. Right. They just don't. Some people are not qualified to contribute to some of the to some of the brainstorming sessions or, you know, whatever we're in. But in, in the startup world, you have these very young millennials, um, recent college grads. Like when I was at HubSpot, the average age was 27. Um, so, you know, first, second job. And you have these folks who come to the table with an idea that's maybe not for fully fleshed out because guess what? It doesn't have to be because as soon as you put the idea out, even if it's not great, 
people kind of look at you and say, uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, I, I guess I could see that. Uh, maybe not this time, but yeah, definitely maybe in the future. Right? I never, I, I was like, whoa, whoa, what is this? You're not going to tell them that that idea is uh, not well thought out or is not justifiable or defensible or any of these things. We're just going to pretend it was good, but just is a bad fit. That seems very bizarre. This person doesn't know how to go away and improve the idea. They don't know how to go away and build on their original you know, deliverable and, and make it good enough that it can go out. In the future, they don't know what they were missing so, in, you know, to avoid missing it in the future. Though it was really shocking to me how, how everyone in tech, at least you know, from what I had seen, it, it was a very sugar-coated kind of culture. You know, this, we're all happy, we all work together, we all have our place, we're all kumbayaing along. And that was just so unlike what I had experienced um, in philosophy, at MTV, and really even in, in the uh, government, you know, language learning software job. You have these military guys who are incredibly candid with you, uh, which, you know, once you're used to that is really liberating because you know exactly what you need to do and exactly what you need to fix. And so um, when I made it to MTV, I was just kind of blown away by how soft everybody was. And for anyone who knows what, you know, creative director's job is, you're, you're kind of the old, the last guy before, uh, something hits your, your audience, your customers, your potential customers. You're the guy who has to sign off on it and say, yes, that is of a high enough quality to go out of the door. And so as part of that role, just inherently, your job is to say no a lot. No, that's not good enough. No, uh, this, this, no, we can't send that out because this needs to be fixed. No, I'm sorry. We'll probably never send this out, but this is something we could do instead. So you're, you're, you're kind of at the crossroads of, of dissent and expectation. Your job is to say no or yes to things, but in an environment where everyone thinks all of their ideas are valuable and matter and are even good, people come to the board with this expectation that they're going to get a pat on the back. And so I would often get feedback like you're a little too direct. But what do you mean I'm too direct? Isn't why would you want me to be indirect? Right? It's this is not personal. We're talking about deliverables here. So why would you want me to beat around the bush over how someone could improve something so we could get it out the door? So in general, you know, I, I both because of where I came from and because of the nature of the role, I just found myself feeling like. Uh, the kind of mentality I'm bringing into this is completely different from those around me and from the culture that this organization is trying to breed. And so, you know, HubSpot was an amazing thing for my career. There's just no denying it. You know, more than a billion dollar, uh, you know, valuation at IPO or market, you know, market cap. And then uh, I was there, you know, leading up to it and I was the creative director. It's, you know, it will probably make my career going forward. It will probably be the thing that I am, you know, known as for a while. That said, it was never that good of a cultural fit because this of, of how much the sugar coating of, you know, of feedback and criticism is just unlike anything I had seen before. Yeah, so and and you you kind of just alluded to this, um, you know, around the IPO is when sort of you know you made the transition to leave HubSpot. Was there was there a reason it was around that time? Because obviously a lot of longstanding employees, uh, any company, you know, when there's an IPO or or an acquisition or or uh, investment, that tends to drive people away. Did that have anything to do with it, or was that just it just happened to fall around that time? Um, no, there's. I mean, it's there's a, usually a mass exodus from companies once they go public. Um, a lot of people who are unhappy will tend to hang out until uh, the event happens so that they can say, yes, I was there when it happened. A lot of people are curious what an IPO is like internally, and so they'll hang around for those reasons. Um, but also, you know, most folks, their stock is never higher than when all eyes are on them after an IPO. And so to go get a much better job, a higher paying job, a, a larger role at another company is usually easiest around that time because there's just, it's fresh in everybody's minds and in the community's mind. Um, I would say there was a combination of being unhappy for a considerable amount of time, HubSpot being unwilling to respond, uh, you know, the folks I worked with being unwilling to respond to that, you know, 
unhappiness, even though I was quite vocal and candid about it. And they, I got a lot of the, yeah, yeah, it's coming. It's coming. I promise. Sit tight. It's coming. It's coming. Um, but the truth of the fact of the matter being that for, for me to have, for HubSpot to have given me the things that would have made me happy and feel fulfilled, they would have had to be honest with other employees and say, Hey, I'm sorry, you probably are not qualified to own this. We're going to shift this over to Keith. And because of the environment, they just seemed unwilling to do that. And so, you know, the, the IPO was coming up. Um, HubSpot has a giant conference called inbound that was coming up. Um, but they were, and I played a big role in a, especially the latter, you know, as the creative director. So I was basically proving all of the work that goes into this, you know, giant conference. Um, and it just seemed like the right time. I wasn't really interested in, in going through um, with this conference prep and with uh, finishing out the IPO when they were making really no, no moves to improve my situation. Uh, even though I genuinely to this day believe that a lot of those would have been for the, you know, the benefit of the company uh, would have actually improved enterprise value, not just Keith's happiness. Uh, so it ended up that I just felt like it was a good time to leave. I, I thought I had, they'd already filed the S1. Most of my work for the IPO was done. So I just figured, you know what, why wait? Anybody who knows will know that I, I've done good work here over the last few years and that will be enough to get the next job. And so I started kind of like looking out into the, the, you know, the, the Boston startup community and saying who might be interested. And a lot of people were interested and they were interested for, um, they're interested in getting me and willing to, you know, provide me with a lot. So, you know, I received, um, you know, several job offers while in just the week or two I was looking and the lowest one was a 70% increase in salary. And so it's just like, you know, how do I stick out and say no to this? And finally, HubSpot came and they told me what they were going to give me, you know, as a compensation package bump. And it was just not even within the ballpark of what I would have considered uh, fair. And so and it was nothing compared to what I was being offered outside. And so I just felt like, you know, I love my team. Um, this company has given me a lot. They've, I believe they've really you know, made my career in tech, at least, especially Boston Tech. But I think I've, I've done as much as I can do here. And so I gave my notice and uh, ended up transitioning out. And so that's kind of the whole story. And it sounds like obviously the contrast between, you know, sort of this pre-tech world experience that you had, um, you know, coupled with, you know, the kind of realizations that you saw, you know, working at a place like HubSpot, um, you know, obviously stark contrast uh, to, to the boardroom mentality, obviously, that you mentioned earlier at MTV. Is this, uh, this sounds like obviously a natural progression into adventures and in honesty, right? Like, um, you know, obviously, it, it's not just about professional work, you know, it's, it's also following your personal life. But did a lot of that contrast and, and that culture shock that you refer to, did that sort of contribute to this idea of adventures and honesty and also a lot of the speaking gigs, you know, that you're around at, uh, you know, local universities and, and, and speaking on things like this? Was this all inspired by sort of that, that difference and that culture shock that you experienced? Absolutely. And I, and I really believe in my own personal life, it's a natural progression of, of how we, of, um, you know, my own directness and candor, both in my personal life. And then obviously that has been, um, you know, influenced by my, my philosophy background and then my work experience, of course. Um, but you know, for any who are unfamiliar, Adventures in Honesty is a project I've started, I started at the end of 2015, um, which is an uncompromising commitment to honesty. So essentially a commitment to not lying to anybody about absolutely anything, not at work, not at home, not even when I tell homeless people why I won't give them money on the street, right? Like it's a real kind of global commitment to not lying to people. Um, there's a lot of nuance there. Uh, I write about, you know, how to be honest without, without being an asshole. I think people immediately think that when you say I'm not going to lie, that you, what you're saying is I'm removing the filter from my brain to my mouth, but that's absolutely not the case, right? There's still, there's still room for tack and, um, especially in terms of mitigating conflict. And so anyway, with that aside, um, yeah, I believe, you know, I had, I left HubSpot and I would go give these talks after and I would be very candid to the audience about um, at these tech conferences about my experience at HubSpot and what I thought they did poorly and what I thought they did well and the lessons I had learned along the way. Um, you know, I after HubSpot, I joined an early stage startup and I only stayed as an exec and I only stayed 
three or four weeks. And then I left because it was a terrible fit. And, you know, going to conferences and telling people about my experience of taking a job, you know, that was documented and, you know, was covered in places like Bostino and these other tech media outlets. And then to only leave, you know, to leave only four weeks later, that's hard to stomach. But what it, you know, why I did that. And so going out and having these talks and seeing the response I was getting from people, you know, like how, how great they loved, you know, how much they appreciated this really honest assessment of, of, you know, and retelling of, of what I had experienced personally. And I started thinking about this and then I I started thinking about how I'd always managed the people who reported to me. So, you know, at HubSpot leading up to a conference, we could have as many as 14 creative professionals, video producers, video editors, designers, you know, UX, web and uh, visual and these folks reporting to me. And there was never any of this. uh, Yeah, I'm just not sure how I feel about this. It was really direct, immediate feedback on their work and how I thought they were doing and I was routinely rated, uh, you know, very high uh, by the p- people who reported to me in terms of, you know, during my like quarterly reviews from my reports. And our team was really happy and no one was leaving. And, and I felt like the work was that we were doing was going so well. And I kind of remembered how my team worked at MTV. And I just thought, like, I can't think of a any scenario in which being indirect or being dishonest has actually improved my life. In fact, like, I think it's limited to me. Have be, being able to throw out bullshit excuses about why I can't come to things or why I can't do things, it's acted as a crutch to actually keep me from following through with those commitments. And if I actually made, if I was unable to lie about, you know, something even like why I'm late for something, then I just have to, if I'm unable to do that, then I either tell the person, hey, I left late because I'm a lazy bastard or I leave early enough so that I'm not late. And so by removing the ability for me to lie, I've actually improved myself as a person rather than giving myself all these excuses for, uh, you know, why I'm not ideal in, in certain scenarios. And so, yeah, this adventures in honesty was just kind of this moment of realization that, you know, really basic idea that the world would be a better place if we all just stopped fucking lying to each other all the time. And we, we lie at an absolutely alarming rate. And people think, no, not, not that much. Really? Like you, how often do you say, see someone, you say, oh my God, it's so good to see you. And you don't believe that it's actually not good to see them. <laughs> I bring that up because that's the last lie I remember telling. Or how often do you tell people, oh, I'm stuck in traffic and you're not really stuck in traffic or a million other things. We lie at an unbelievably alarming rate. In fact, there's been, they've done studies that, you know, one study in particular uh, showed that as high as 40% of all college age conversations, meaning conversations amongst college age uh, people are lies, 40%. That's unbelievable. And so when I look at these kind of things and I think back on my own life and I compare what I think was productive work in past jobs and my current job with the kind of sugar coating of feedback that I saw at HubSpot, I just could no longer justify lies. And so I said, you know, rather than you know, half-ass it and do my best not to lie. I'm just not going to lie about anything. I'm going to make a global commitment, an uncompromising commitment to honesty. And that's basically what I've been doing with Adventures in Honesty is telling, you know, is sharing my experiences of trying to live a life without lying. And it's been, yeah, it's just been, you know, completely eye-opening and really, really one of the best things I've ever done. So the the part that's interesting, I would say to me is, is there a difference? Is there a line between lying and perhaps oversharing, right? Like you mentioned somebody, you know, it's, it's not good to see you. You wouldn't actually say that to somebody, right? Like where, where's that line between withholding something that might be a little hurtful or like how, how do you draw that sort of distinction between what's lying and what's kind of just withholding something for somebody's own good? Or is there a difference or is, is it all lying? Yeah. What, what's funny is, when you tell someone something like that, that, that case is a perfect case to talk about because it seems so benign, right? Like, what is it? What is the big deal if you tell someone it's great to see them when it's not? And I have two responses to that. One, uh, the risk is too great. And I've experienced this myself. Telling small lies in cases that you think are trivial and don't are, are inconsequential, it kind of plants the seed that makes it easier to lie when it's more important. 
uh, I have experienced this. Like if I slip up and I, it, it, like when I say I've made a commitment to uncompromising honesty, it's a process. Like there are, th- I mess up and I try and correct myself immediately to try and negate that lie. But I'm not infallible. I do make mistakes, but you know, with, it, I believe there, it, there's too much at stake here. And so if we allow ourselves to tell little micro lies, it makes it that much easier to tell macro lies. You know, my, uh, Bernie Madoff did not start by stealing billions of dollars. He started by stealing a toy truck from preschool. And then he, he graduated to stealing uh, a dollar out of his mom's purse and so on and so forth. Like no one wakes up and steals a billion dollars. It doesn't happen. I think lying is sort of like that. Um, the, other, the other reason uh, I try and argue against that is that lies like that, like, oh, it's so good to see you again, they are entirely unnecessary. There are millions of countless other responses like, oh my God, I didn't know you were going to be here or it's such a surprise to see you. These are all true things and they don't have to be hurtful or negative. So people like when they ask me these things, they think they're like almost binary. Like you're either uh, hurtful or you lie. But that's not the case at all. You can say a lot of things that are true and not hurtful, right? But also they're not lies because they're true. So for example, I have a, something similar. When I first started this project, I started having people come to me and say, what would you do in this situation? And I love that because it's, it's us starting a dialogue about being honest with each other. And my mom is a great example, one of the feistiest but sweetest ladies. Like she doesn't want to make you feel bad about yourself. And a woman at her job uh, bought her a sweater and brought it to her as a gift. And my mom did not like this sweater. <laughs> I think she's like, oh, Keith, it was whew, hideous. Uh, but I told her, oh, my God, I love it. I'll wear it tomorrow. But my mom didn't love it. And so when she's like, what should I have done? I didn't want to hurt her feelings. I said, but what you did is you hid what was so you, – you basically – lied to this woman and told her that the reason you loved it was because it was aesthetically pleasing. When really what you loved about it was that this woman thought about you enough and cared about you enough to bring you something unsolicited. She was thinking about you as she was walking around and brought you something. And if you thanked her for that, that is, that is still really positive. And you actually do love that. So a more honest and not hurtful thing would be to say, oh my God, I am so touched that you thought of me to bring the to thought of me enough to bring me this. I will absolutely wear it tomorrow. Right? What's wrong with that? It's true. You're actually pointing out the thing that you love. And you never said that you liked the sweater. Yeah, you never lied explicitly. Right? Yep. And, you know, so people say, well, then what if she said blah, 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 blah. Okay, yeah, I get it. You could go ad nauseum about these things. But what matters here is that you told the truth. You know, the other thing here, and, and the lie was completely unnecessary. There are great things you could say. And one of, the, one of the amazing kind of byproducts of this is, I've noticed this in my personal life, is in order to be honest to people in every moment, you really have to be in the moment and aware and cognizant of what, you're, what, what words you're using. Because one of the hardest things to avoid doing is these kind of compulsory lies, the filling of the, si- the silence. Hey, how you doing? Oh, I'm tired. You know what? I'm actually not tired. I had eight hours of sleep and a great cup of coffee from Starbucks and I'm ready to roll. I just, you know, why did I say, oh, I'm so tired? We do that not just with those kind of things, but a lot of these compulsory filling of the silences. And a lot of times those are just bullshit lies. But when you're trying to commit to not lying, you make yourself be aware in every moment. Is what I'm saying right now accurate, authentic, and acceptable, right? And if it's not one of those three things, you either need to improve yourself or you need to change what you're about to say. And so, you know, for example, now I don't throw blanket compliments at people unless they deserve them. But now when people get them, they can really feel a point of pride about having received a compliment because that's true. I actually think you did a great job, right? And if I don't think you did a great job, I'm going to tell you, I don't think you did a great job. And What I've noticed is by being more present and being more honest with people, they in turn have become much more honest with me as well. And so we are having just with the people who are close to me, either my coworkers or um, my friends or family members, even strangers or, you know, relative acquaintances who for some reason or another follow, follow the blog, Adventures in Honesty, they, they have very candid conversations with me when we meet, even if it's just the first time. And there's something really liberating about that. 
about not thinking that everything you're going to say to me is you blowing smoke up my ass or being, you know, untrue about, um, you know, about the things we're, we're discussing. So, um, you know, there's a lot there to unpack and there's a lot of nuance to this, but generally, you know, my life has not gotten worse because of this. In fact, I would say the relationships in my life have improved tremendously. And I would think the quality, I believe that who I am as a person has actually benefited greatly from this as well. Because if I'm making sure I'm, you know, I'm not lying, I either have to tell the person why I'm, I have shitty behavior, such as showing up late or canceling last minute, or I have to make myself do it, which avoids the shitty behavior altogether. So it's been a really interesting process of self-discovery of, of life improvement of, you know, kind of skill improvement, but also relationship improvement as well. Uh, so what's, um, do you have like a, a favorite story or funny moment that you tell people that, uh, you know, has sort of occurred in this adventure so far? Yeah, there are, a, <laughs> there are a bunch of funny stories, you know, like you can off, honestly have some pretty hilarious conversations once you're both revealing the grimy parts about yourself. So <laughs> I'm in the middle of an article now about why we, um, you know, why we really lie. And when it, you know, when you ask people, you know, listen, you and I are honest with each, with each other now. And so I want to honestly know why you lie to other people. Basically, everyone says, well, I lie to protect other people's feelings, which is utter bullshit. Like, yes, I'm sure you do that sometimes. But is that really the source of most of your lying, that it would be the main thing that you tell me? Or is it because you are selfish and you lie for selfish reasons? And so essentially when you push people on that, they almost always agree, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty fucking selfish. And uh, <laughs> I lie to make my life easier, more convenient, less awkward, to get out of things I don't want to do, to have people view me uh, as better than I really am, these kind of things. And so you can have some pretty hysterical conversations once you're both honest about these things. Um, but I've actually had some very profound conversations with people. Um, I have a uh, a really good friend, one of my best friends. In fact, he's more like a little brother. And um, he for we went to school together, and uh, for financial reasons, he was. Um, we're gonna. I'm gonna call him Bill. Okay. For financial reasons, he was forced to pull out and go help his family in um, at home for his before his senior year of school, and he's yet to return to finish his um, his degree. And we hear the rest of our buddies that, you know, he's going to go back. He's going to go back. He's going to get, you know, take out a loan and go back. But it is yet to happen. And now we are many years removed from school. He's younger than me, by the way. Um, so he's not as far removed from school as I am. Uh, but in the last, I'd say, two years, I haven't seen much, much motivation. I haven't seen him really take big steps towards improving his career. And so, you know, his friend group, you know, my, our you know, I'm a product executive in the startup world. I've been at an IPO company. Our friend is, um, you know, a senior project manager at a startup. Uh, we have a friend going to MIT business school. Like we have a lot of friends who are really trying their best to progress their career. And this one friend, Bill, who is just as smart, just as talented, just as gifted as the rest of us, same education, he's kind of stalled out. He's doing, you know, part-time jobs and getting paid kind of low hourly wages to do these jobs that candidly are well below his ability. But when he leaves his job, when he's hanging out at my house, his face is stuck in an iPad playing, uh, you know, like Flappy Bird or, you know, some silly uh, Plants vs. Zombies game. And he spends his free time distracting himself from reality, from getting on with, with his own life and with you know, fulfilling his potential. And for a year, I'm not kidding you, John, for a year, uh, a few of us have talked about this, how like, are we enabling him by not calling him out on this? Are we enabling him by being willing to cover his drinks when we go out? Like if we refuse to pay for his cover charge when we go out, would he get his shit together? But none of us have ever said it. And then soon after I started this project, this commitment to honesty, I said, Thomas, I feel compelled to tell you this because I love you. Right? I, you know, I love you as a brother. I just realized I said his name, but you know, fuck it. Let's be honest. Like Thomas, I love you as a brother. Um, I feel like you have given up, like you have maxed out your your potential essentially uh, because you've allowed your potential to essentially return to zero. 
And I believe the worst thing that's ever happened to you is you bought that iPad because you stuff your face in it every second you can. And you never, you're distracting yourself from getting along with real life. Like, and he looked almost shocked that I told him this. And it ended up starting one of the best conversations we've ever had together. And now he and I are able to have this unbelievably honest dialogue with one another about how his career is progressing and what he hopes to do. And it seems like he's finally has a plan together about how he wants to go about this. And the best thing for me to see is when we're sitting around the house, even for not doing anything, when he reaches for his iPad, I see him take a moment to consider if there's something more productive he could be doing. And that feels unbelievable. This is a guy I've known for, you know, years. I mean, almost, God, you know, getting getting on up closer to a decade. I love him like my little brother. And for me to be honest with him and tell him this has allowed us to have a better a better relationship than we've ever had. And he understands I'm not telling him this to be mean. I'm telling this because I want the best for him. And so there, are, that is not a rare, to be honest, that's not a rare conversation that I have anymore. I have very, very candid and honest conversations with folks. Uh, even giving talks at schools, you know, I give a lot of talks to undergraduates at schools like Emerson and MIT and Northeastern and, you know, a lot of Boston area schools. And I'm giving them very honest and candid feedback that they're just not hearing from other speakers or from their their career counselors or from their professors or any of these things, you know. And I've the feedback I've gotten has just been really, you know, really awesome and, um, you know, terrible description there because it doesn't do it justice. But it's humbling to to be able to have, you know, amazing conversations with people who are trans who, who are transactional relationships. They're not genuine, sincere relationships because you don't know them that well. And it's hard enough for us to have really good conversations with those of us with our really close relationships, but to be able to have them with strangers or relative strangers, it's really something special. I'm sure. I'm sure. And that, that's a phenomenal story. Um, this has been a, this has been an awesome, insightful conversation. So tell us about like, what's next? Cause I remember at the beginning of this year, I think you alluded uh, on one of the social networks that you had a few projects you were excited about this year. One of which was Adventures in Honesty. You got any uh, any other exciting things up your sleeve for this year? Yeah. So every week, I um, I have a rule for myself. The regimen is kind of uh, what am I learning? Who am I meeting? What am I making? <laughs> and if I can't clearly point to answer each one of those questions each week, then I consider that week a failure. Um, so you know, what am I learning? Uh, who am I meeting? What am I making? And those three things alone, I think a, con- a consistent cadence of keeping up with that has been a, a huge de- reason why my career has gone fairly well up until this point. Um, so one of my plans is to launch a new project every single quarter So uh, for 2016. So I just launched uh, Adventures in Honesty at the beginning of this year. Uh, the next thing I'm working on is a project called Creative Descent. So um, each month I'm going, I am basically putting out a a set of six articles all on the same theme, uh, same monthly theme, each written by a different creative professional from a different field. Uh, And I don't tell them anything. I don't tell the authors anything else other than the theme. So the theme could be process or urgency or failure or obsession or whatever. And I get six different uh, creative professionals to, to write an article about what that means to them. And without giving, telling them who else is writing an article or who else is, um, you know, contributing or what I expect from them, as a package, you get a really interesting mix of perspectives. So for the first one, which was on process, I had one of my good buddies, Kirk Wallace, who is an illustrator for Facebook and Google and Scholastic and Huffington Post. He wrote an article on process, and I had a Broadway actor in New York write an article. I had a you know multi multiple New York Times bestselling author Susan Piver write an article. CC Chapman, who I know you've had in the past, uh, he wrote an article, and when, they all are completely different. But when viewed as a set, you start to see a common thread run throughout them. So. I'm hoping to launch that uh, in April. I'm really excited for it. And then I'll have a, a new project, um, which I don't want to talk about just yet, Look, coming up in you know the third quarter of the year. So uh, that's kind of what I got going on. But you know, if anyone wants to stay in touch, please reach out to me at Twitter, the Keith F, T-H-E-K-E-I-T-H-F, or 
hell, email me, Keith period A period Frankel at gmail.com. Um, and I'm always open to, to clown around and get weird on some new creative work. Just don't leave him a fucking voicemail because he's not. <laughs> just don't, because I'm not going to check it. These people who leave me voicemails, I, they must be collectors or something because I just don't get it. <laughs> Keith, man, this was awesome. Uh, really enjoyed this conversation. Insightful dude. This was a lot of fun. We got, we got to stay in touch. John, thank you so much. I appreciate you having me. I appreciate your uh, listeners for listening to me ramble this long. And uh, yeah, I hope we can hope we can get together soon. Absolutely. And and for the listeners out there, as Keith just said, thank you for listening in. Uh, you guys are what makes this podcast obviously necessary. And uh, be sure to tune in next time because we'll have more guests. So long, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>